To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch buck? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, got a new episode of Eastman's Elevated for you guys. Uh, so today my guest is Kip Fowler. Uh, Kip Fowler is just a great guy. I met him through a mutual friend, his hunting partner, Matt Bateman, who is also just a killer. Um, and those guys go all over. They hunt uh, elk and moose and whitetails, and, and then they really hunt hard for mule deer. And, and I think that's Kip's true passion is hunting high country mule deer, and he's really good at it. He's killed just some bomber bucks. And um, he, he just produces year after year on, on good quality bucks. And and I really like Kip's approach on, on life and his approach on hunting and hunting partners. He's just a great hunting partner. Um, you know, they they really support each other and, and are happy for each other when they're successful and, and always there to help out and, and help pack out. And uh, I just think Kip's a great guy, and, and uh, I really enjoyed today's conversation with him. Uh, a bunch of tips and tactics in here and, and uh, just, a, just a great conversation, so you guys will enjoy it. Today's sponsor for the show is Zamberlin Boots. Um, so I've been using Zamberlin Boots for about a year now. I used them oh, in Hawaii and that gnarly lava rock country, just ankle-breaking uh, country in there. And then just got done using it on my Idaho backcountry mule deer hunt where I just did a ton of miles and in steep terrain. And, and they just perform flawlessly. And they make a... A light mid-height boot, uh, super waterproof. My feet have never been wet in them and, and seem to hold their waterproofing really well. Uh, I like their traction. I like what they're doing you know, on their, on their soles for grip. Um, just a, a well put together boot uh, and you really get your money's worth when you, when you go with Zamberlin. So thanks to those guys for sponsoring the podcast and, and make sure you check out their boots. They're top notch. Um, over there at Eastman's, we're just all hunting hard. I, I got a message from Guy yesterday that he had been elk hunting hard. He's got a really good Wyoming tag there, and so he was chasing him in the snow there, and so I can't wait to see what he turns up. And oh, I heard back from Brandon Mason. He just got back from this huge Alaskan adventure float trip with one of his buddies, and he was hunting caribou and moose up there. I saw they got a nice caribou, and uh, Dan Picard's all over. I know he's chasing elk like a maniac right now. He just absolutely loves elk hunting. So be interesting to see what he t- comes up with. And, and and then as well, I'm I'm just super busy. I get back and, and put out a podcast, take care of some stuff at work, and, and uh, get back in the hills. So I've been hunting elk hard here with a couple of buddies of mine and and uh, getting back after it Saturday, I'm I'm leaving to the central part of the state and and do I don't know eight ten days over there hunting elk and so really hoping to turn up a good bull and get a good arrow in them and and uh, just keep this streak going. Um, gosh, I just love this time of year. It's it's busy, but it's just so much fun. Um, so. Uh, also, I just saw a special on on Eastman's too, where we're giving away an outdoor edge knife kit. So it's like a butchering kit, and it's a $40 value, and we're giving it away with a subscription to both magazines. Um, so if you guys aren't subscribed, make sure to check it out. Uh, we just pour our heart and soul into those articles, um, coming up with a, just a bunch of good pictures for the next year for the magazine, and and uh, coming up with ideas that I can I can pitch to Eastman's, and, and they keep me really busy writing these articles. And it it's just a, it, it's a, a fun way to express yourself and a fun way to express hunting and kind of dive 
deep down the rabbit hole of different techniques and tactics in, in the Western world. And so uh, it's just a great magazine. Plus, we've got all our subscriber stories in there. And, and you guys are just doing such a great job at, at getting good harvest photos and good support photos. And you guys are good writers as well. Um, gosh, the, the stories in there are just great. But uh, make sure to check it out. Go to our website, uh, eastmans.com, and, and get on there and get a subscription if you don't already have one. Um, with that, let's get this thing rolling, this conversation between me and Kip Fowler, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. All right, I'm here live with Kip Fowler. Kip, thanks for being on, man. Oh, you're welcome, Brian. Good to be on. You caught me in a good window out here in between a couple different hunts here in Utah, so glad to do it. Yeah, well, I was a little bit worried. Um, I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a while. We kind of met through a mutual friend, and we've been in contact for oh the last handful of years, kind of back and forth. And so I've wanted to have you on, but I didn't hit you up until mule deer season, which is a huge no-no for you and me. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. It's like Christmas for kids. Everything revolves around Christmas when you're a little kid, and now – as I get older, everything seems to revolve around, you know, when archery season opens up for mule deer. So there's a lot of guys out there I know whose calendar, you know, day one isn't January 1st. It's usually that third weekend in August, and that's the same for us. Oh, man, isn't that the truth? Yeah, um, we're just cut from the same cloth. Me and you, we're both just crazy about big mule deer. And so uh, I know you go hard every year, and so you've been going hard the last few days. You said been hunting the last three days or something like that? Yeah, Utah opened up. So today's – what day of the week is it? Wednesday. Um, the hunt, hunt started this last weekend out here in Utah. So um, it was funny. My son Easton, who's uh, 17, he had a football game Friday night. And actually, nothing is more important than high school football, even even bow hunting big mule deer. So my son's at that age where he's playing high school football. So I was at his football game, their first game of the season, Friday night till late. And then I ended up backpacking in Saturday at mid, you know, Friday night at midnight, one in the morning, got to camp. And Saturday morning, uh, I was sitting in a high pass, um, kind of waiting to see if some of the hunting pressure in the area would push deer through this pass. And I sat there all day Saturday and most of the day Sunday and most of the day Monday. And actually, I was just telling you, I had a pretty decent little four-point come through. Um, decided to pass on him because it was so early in the in the hunt. Um, but yeah, it, it, this last weekend, uh, we pounded it for three days hard. We came out. It's funny. Uh, in the country we hunt, we came out after day three and you're just sore and beat up and our feet hurt and and then tuesday morning i get a text from matt and he's like let's get back up there so it's this it's this fever you just can't seem to feed enough of and it's that time of year oh man yeah so true well and um and you've killed some bomber bucks over the years i think that's where i first saw you at is that um the superman buck was the first buck that i or the first time i ever saw you in any magazine that was way before i ever met you but what a giant buck that was oh thanks you know he was and i i give you know, I'm no credit to me. It's the deer. It's just that caliber of deer on public land. You know, I still have seen in my life maybe two or three bucks that will push that 230 mark. Um, so I knew when I when I found him scouting that it was an opportunity that I hadn't really experienced before to to actually try to hunt a deer like that on public land and to do it myself. Um, so. I, I feel very, very blessed and fortunate to have taken him because in bow hunting in this high country and a deer of that magnitude, it's hard to find them and it's hard to even 
and hunt them, and then you know your opportunities are going to be few and far between to actually pull back. So uh, I knew when I killed him, um, it was a blessing for me and just a, a culmination of a lifetime of bow hunting that seemed to, to to climax right there on the mountain with this incredible deer. And I still don't take it for granted. I, I know that I was fortunate, it, it, and it's actually interesting, Brian, as you mentioned. Guys see a deer like that, and I have made more contacts and friends through killing killing that deer through Superman. I've had guys contact me and and message me and text me, and it, it's been it, it's just opened up. So it it did open up so many wonderful opportunities to meet people and reconnect with guys in the hunting world. I had friends of mine that I grew up with in Southern Utah shoot me texts that I hadn't talked to in you know 15 years, saying, "Hey, Kip, I saw you killed this buck," and it was. It was kind of a new experience for me, but it was awesome. And, it, and since then, I mean, Brian, it's been a wild ride, and it still continues. It's been incredible. It it uh, it continues every year, doesn't it? Uh, the trials and tribulations we go through chasing those deer. And I'm like you, like even just to have the chance to chase a deer that big on public lands is so special, you know. And and they're so tough to find, but then they're so tough to harvest. And yeah, and, and uh, you've harvested, you know, not only that deer, but a bunch of great mule deer. It seems like every year you're coming up with a with another good deer, but but something of that magnitude and, and that special to chase a deer that big um that's what it's all about isn't it yeah it really is and you know you dream about it from the time you're a little kid and that's why again when you find a deer like that it, it almost obsessed me to try to keep track of him because i again i i knew what he was um and i so i spent a lot of time in the area trying to figure out not just what he was doing and trying to keep an eye on him i was trying to figure out the best way to hunt him and so that you know that's where I really felt like I started to learn more about being more tactical with these deer. Where's their most likely escape route? Where are they likely going to feed if they get bumped? Where are they going to go? And it's funny you start to think about it almost too much, and it almost becomes more of a more of an obsession than it needs to be. But I learned a lot through that experience hunting him. Um, and again, being able to harvest him was incredible. And then a couple of years later, I found another deer that I thought would go 220. Um, and I got very, very fortunate enough to take him, and he ended up going 215. They're the same class, so I realized, God, you know, how often does lightning strike twice with deer like this? It may never strike for me again, ever, but it's the it's the the hope of finding another deer of that magnitude. Um, and then again, it turns into this high country chess match where you're trying to figure out where to sit and where, you know, Matt and I, my friend Matt Bateman, um, that you referenced earlier. Um, Matt and I were on deer this this last weekend on Monday afternoon um, that were, you know, not 200-inch deer, but they're both for high country mule. They were incredible deer to be going after, and it took us three days to find them. And then, you know, midday, Matt and I are pinching in on this really good deer, and he's 60 yards one, one way of it, and I'm 60 yards of the other, and we got it bedded up in a pine patch, and I would have bet money it was going to go down, and of course it didn't. But those opportunities, I you know, you look forward to them all year and then when they come you know whether you harvest the animal or not i always look back and just think man that was an incredible day like monday that was an, you know that was the day of the eclipse so i was telling you brian i'm sneaking in on this deer and i got my shoes off and i'm wearing these I, we wear these moccasins now they're called stockasins and i'm sneaking across this avalanche shooting my stockasins and it's about noon and i got this deer at 70 yards bedded and all of a sudden this it starts to get dark and I was – it just felt weird, and I was kind of looking around. I looked up in the sky, and there were no clouds above me, and 
Then it started to cool down at noon, and I realized it was this full eclipse going on, and I was so out of it. I was so zoned in on this deer. It took me a minute to remember, oh, that's right. There's an eclipse going on today, um, but so dialed in for the moment, and that will be one of these memories. You know, We have so many memories that that you know we, we remember a certain – Certain buck and it starts this flood of memories of hunting them, stalking them, whether you harvest them or not. And that's part of the fun of it all is just this multitude of memories we keep with us that every now and again you think about and it keeps you coming back year after year. Man, you're so right. Well, and it's enjoying the experience, like you say, because you know you get chances at these good bucks and you get to make plays on them, but but it takes so many days and so much effort to actually get the chance to send that arrow or kill that buck. So you got to kind of enjoy the journey of it. You got to enjoy the trials and tribulations and being outsmarted. And so any day that I'm in the woods, I'm enjoying myself, and any day I'm getting a stock, like I I hold yep. that in my bank of memories, like like that was fun. That's why I love to bow hunt. Getting close like that, I always say, you know, that was worth the price of admission. That oh, was yeah. Worth- and you, you know what I wish I would have done, Brian? I wish I would have, after every hunt or scouting trip, I wish I would have come home and written one paragraph about it. Just one little, you know, I want to on the mountain today. This is where I went. This is what I saw. Because those memories, it's funny how over time they start to fade. And when I'm hunting with certain guys, they'll bring up things and we laugh about it and we share stories. And I think, God, I forgot that. And I wish, you know, for anybody listening to this podcast, whether you're 18 or 30 or 50, I am starting now to write things down, just those little moments in the mountains that you're referring to that keep you coming back. But it's funny how over time they, there's so many of them that you start to forget certain experiences and you know a lot of that now is captured with our phones and photos where you know most of us have a phone with us and we're taking pictures of everything and those pictures kind of capture those memories but i sure wish you know i've been bow hunting 35 years and i i wish i would have wrote more of those little moments down so i could look back and laugh at them remember them because i think you're right brian that kind of keeps you going and those memories of and it also reminds you of how many times it didn't work out, and yet you still come back and you still enjoy it. I, I just wish I would have written more of those down over the years. Man, you're so right. Well, and it sounds like you've started on it, but yeah, it's not too late, and I think I'm going to take your advice too. You, you have so many memories, and you love to bow hunt so much that you're right. It starts You start to forget some, and you start to lose some of those memories that – that that means so much to you and at the time are so cool i need to do the same thing and with this podcast you know i i find that i i tell stories now and again of stalking a buck or doing but there's a lot of stocks and a lot of close encounters that i've forgotten as well and then like you say you get together with buddies and they bring up one of them and all of a sudden all those emotions come flooding back and and like you say the pictures do a great job of that too but it's really trying to capture as as many of those moments as you can so you can remember them later in life and, and draw from them. Oh, yeah, and if you think about it too, you know, if you, you know, I'm referring mainly to high country mule there with a bow, but what's the percentage of taking an animal, you know, versus the the opportunities that you try to try to present yourself? You know, they're so small. So I, I just look at all the times I go out hunting, how many days, and and, and you know, it may culminate in one animal being harvested. But that one animal doesn't encompass the experience for you. It's every morning you woke up at 3 a.m. and went up and didn't find anything and came back and then did it again and then did it again. And so those are the things I want to document more because at the end of the hunting season, if you look back and you've got five or ten field photos of one animal you harvested, that does not – 
define what you did that season. It's everything in between, and I want to remember more of those moments so that it's not just being defined by whether you harvested an animal or not. It's everything leading up to it, the scouting, the early morning waking up, the hiking. Um, that's the stuff I feel like I want to remember more of that, and I seem to appreciate it more now over time. I, I seem to be reminiscing more about not just whether I harvested an animal, but all these little things I seem to be forgetting over time. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I I just trying to enjoy the experience more, and I'm I'm still driven, and I still like to get after good deer and make stocks and make plays. I mean, that's the fun of it. But yeah, I'm starting to just enjoy the whole journey a lot more and, and, yeah. and enjoy the trials and tribulations. And really, that's the key to being successful is being persistent, waking up day after day after day, making those hikes, getting into the high country, failing and picking yourself back up again and, and getting another stock and continue hunting. But really, that's the key to success yeah. for me. Yeah, I think I've learned more about the stocks that we've blown. You know, I we again, yeah, I was laughing this weekend as we were coming off the mountain. I just said, you know, one of the lessons I learned this weekend, and I've known it from the time I was five years old, but, you know, playing the wind. Mother Nature holds the ultimate trump card in the wind, and you, if you don't play the wind perfectly, that's what got us this weekend is we were trying to move in on some deer in the wind. You know, we knew in these high country passes the wind usually blows up. Even even early in the morning, late at night, it seems to blow up, and that was just, again, we're walking back, and I'm just laughing, thinking this is something I'm I've known since I was a kid. Maybe we didn't have another play on that animal. Maybe we didn't have another opportunity. But once again, I am reliving and relearning these same lessons that, yeah, the wind killed you on that one, Kip. And so the next, so I seem to learn more about these opportunities that I've missed. And believe me, Brian, I've had so many. I, I, as we're talking, I'm shaking my head because I look at some of these incredible deer that I've come so close on. And, you know, if it can go wrong with bow hunting, it usually does. And I just look at some of these experiences where I was so close. And didn't harvest some of these animals, and it's almost like those fuel me even more, so I can prove to myself year after year after year, I can, you know, I can still be effective. I can learn from that. So those are almost as much of a motivator for me as even when I harvest an animal. Um, I, I find myself thinking back on these little close calls that almost happened, and it makes me want to come back even more. Man, oh man, like you're you're describing my exact thoughts and the exact things that run through my head. It, it's so crazy how similar. Um, you know, hunters are and, and successful hunters are because that's wild. Yeah, I have blown more opportunities on big yeah. deer, you know, and I've harvested a lot of good deer. And, and like you, you know, I've got a, a, a few world class bucks and then a lot of just really nice big bucks. But I, I you know, even harvesting those bucks, I've screwed up on some monster deer, you know? And oh, yeah. It's like you have to learn those lessons over and over again, and, and every year it's the proving grounds, and it's so difficult, and I think that's why we enjoy it so much is the challenge of it. Yeah. And, and even, you know, I a dozen, you know, probably 15 mule deer under my belt or maybe 20 mule deer under my belt at this point, but still every year I have to prove it again that I can get it right yeah, and get it done. And isn't that funny that, you know, you you work your whole life or you, you develop this passion over time and you want to go hunt and harvest an animal. And even when you do that, you it's like you recalibrate the next year and you got to prove it to yourself again. And if it happens again and you have success and you enjoy the moment and then Within a very short period of time, you're already recap. At least that's how my mind works. Is even when I harvested my Superman buck, within a very short period of time, I wanted to see if I could replicate it again. And I, I almost found like that. That seemed to be such a motivator. I wanted to prove to myself I could do it again. And then I harvested another buck that went 215, and I, 
I find myself now, Brian, wanting to do it again. It's like I appreciate it for what it is, and I'll always cherish what I experienced on the mountain that day with friends and with this animal, but I want to do it again. And so, um, you know, that is something that I kind of laugh at within myself is, you know, no matter how many times you can be lucky and fortunate enough to harvest an animal, you start to recalibrate again, and you're already looking and thinking of the next one. Man, so so the truth. Well, and guys don't just climb Everest once. Once they climb it, they want to do it again or find a different mountain. And yeah, it's the same thing with a 200-inch mule deer. You kill this buck of a lifetime, you know. And and some guys kill a big buck and and they're done hunting bucks, or they say, "Well, I got my big one. I'm done." And for guys like me and you, it just lights a fire under us to work harder yeah. and to learn more and to get better, so we can maybe have a, have a chance at another buck of that caliber someday. You and know? you know, one thing that's true too. Brian is a friend of mine that I kind of reconnected with. A friend from high school uh, contacted me a couple years ago, and he got into bow hunting. He'd actually been bow hunting for quite some time and was going through the same frustrations so many bow hunters do. You and I have where you you haven't harvested a, a, a good animal with your bow or even just an animal. And it's you know it's so hard with bow hunting when you haven't been able to accomplish or do that. It, it becomes very frustrating, and he was expressing a lot of frustration, a lot of um, – just he was feeling like he couldn't do it. And I, it made me feel blessed that at a young age, when I was 18, I killed a, a good buck with my bow. And I was lucky, and I was fortunate, but that let me know that I could do it. I knew when I was 18, the first deer I harvested with my bow, with, that was a good deer. I knew I could do it, and that optimism – fed um it, it kind of started to define me how i hunt i just felt optimistic i always felt like i had a chance i always felt like i was in the game because i had done it and i've so many times wanted to reach out to friends and colleagues of mine that haven't had that opportunity just let them know it will come you will the more you're out and the more you pound it and the more you think about it it will happen but so many times it doesn't happen right off the bat um, and so I don't like to see guys get discouraged with bow hunting. I want them to keep going because when it does happen, man, you enjoy it and man, you experience it. And it gives you this sense of optimism. I can do this. I, I finally did it. And I know now I can do it again. Yeah. Well, you draw from it. You draw from yeah. it on all your hunts. And I, I, you know, when I get at towards the end of a tough hunt, whether it's a 10 day hunt and I'm on day nine or day nine or day 10, like I continue to try and I continue to push because I know it can all come, come together in the last few minutes of a hunt because it's, it's happened before for me. And I, I think that's a good tip too is, is just to, you know, when you're, when you haven't, is, is not to set your sights too high to start with. You know, we all want to kill trophy deer and trophy bulls, but you've got to start somewhere. You've got to yeah. start with your first mule deer buck, and then from there go, okay, now I want a three-point, or now I want a four-point. And then you just keep setting your sights a little bit higher, and you keep climbing that ladder towards your goal buck that you want to harvest. But but you can't just start out and say you want a 200-inch deer because they are so difficult to harvest. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked to guys. It's it's funny we're talking about this. This came up recently we're, because Utah's bow hunt was starting in just a few days, and a, a friend of mine said, so how big a buck are you aiming for this year? And I just said, you know what? I know him when I see him. If I'm out hunting and I see a buck, I, I, I tr and, you know, again, sometimes you'll have a monster spotted and you really want to try to harvest that animal. But so many times when when I go out now, it's just like I'll know when I see it if I want to try to harvest it. And sometimes it's a it's a one fifth buck that just has presented itself in a really, really interesting spot to try to stalk him, and sometimes it's a 180 buck. I don't know, but I, I never 
try to openly say I'm, I'm only going to kill a 170 buck because you're up on the mountain and you might see something that presents a challenge and you think you know if I can get in on that deer that would be incredible you know this buck Matt and I were chasing this weekend he wouldn't have scored worth anything but he was a huge mature big body deer he was running with about a 180 buck and he looked like he outweighed it by a hundred pounds and he was all grayed up and you could tell he was the stud on the mountain and I just thought you know if you could harvest him I don't even care what he scores. Look at that deer. He's he is the the stud on the mountain. And if we can get to him with a bow, that would be incredible. So so much of it f- for me now is just I'll know when I see the deer if I want to go after him or not. And it's not just the deer; it's the situation, it's the circumstance, the challenge. That becomes as much a part of it for me now as anything. Yeah. Um, well, and and also you know your your opportunity has to match your goals too. There there isn't always gonna be a 200 inch deer living yep. in the mountains you're hunting or in the tag you have, and so it really has to match you know what your opportunity is. But yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I I kind of set goals based on the area I'm hunting, but I'm with you. I love to hear that you found this giant, old, heavy, gnarly buck that, you know, that is a six, seven, eight-year-old deer, and then that's the deer you wanted to harvest, not the pretty, clean, four-year-old, 180-inch, or whatever he was, but that's really cool to hear because I look at him the same way. Uh, a big, mature mule deer like that would get me excited, and I, I love a big three-point, you know? If he's oh, big yeah. and he heavy and deer. old, yeah. yeah, that gets me excited. Yeah, so we're, those opportunities, especially you, uh, with a bow in the high country, you can't seem to be too picky, you know. Um, that's why I said that buck that came by me the second day of the hunt this year, I thought about it because I'm up in this high pass, and I know getting within bow range is tough, and this buck, I had him, and I thought about it. I thought, ah, it's probably a little too early to take that deer, but I thought about it because these opportunities so many times are so few and far between with a bow. You know, I, I was we were just talking recently with a friend about, I think it was four or five years ago in Utah, I pounded it for three months. You know, two-day hunt here, one day here, two days there, one day here. I never drew my bow, and I was hiking and going as 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 much as I could, and I never drew my bow on a deer. And then kind of to your point earlier, other years it just kind of happens, and you kind of laugh and think, I didn't expect it to happen this way, and all of a sudden the situation presented and I harvested an animal. But just sometimes it is so hard to to even get within bow range of some of these animals, especially, and I will say this, especially on public land, um, when you're not hunting private, you're hunting public, you're doing it yourself. Um, that's why when I hear stories of guys, and I'm more drawn to those stories of guys that are do-it-yourself, high country, public land hunting, uh, I just – I have so much respect for the guys that do that and the guys that hit it hard. And, and then when the success happens, that's just really impressive to me. It's a different ball game that way. Man, it so is. And especially on these easier to draw tags too, where you do have hunting pressure and, and the yeah. deer do deal with pressure. But I'm the same way. I've got so much respect for for a guy that, that is a do-it-yourself uh, bow hunter that goes up there and gets it done. Um, it, it's just incredible to me because we know how difficult it is. We've been yeah. up there and, like you say, had three months of bow hunting where we didn't draw our bow. And, and I have the same thing. It's it's usually easier for me to hold out like when that opportunity, you know, talking about that opportunity, but when I can find a big buck and I know he exists, either through my scouting yeah. or through the first couple days of hunting, and I try not to shoot anything on the first day – unless it's you know unless i know 
it's the one and it all comes together. But if I can just be in an area and kind of look around and take stock of what's there, it's a lot easier for me to hold out for those bigger, older age class deer than, than to settle with something else. Yeah, I had a buck a couple of years ago that I didn't end up harvesting, and he was a two. We thought he'd go two ten to two fifteen, and because I had him in the area, you know, I passed a buck that was a one seventy five type typical. It's the only time in my life I've ever done that, where I had him at thirty five yards. I had him dead. He was a legitimate twenty six inch, like a one seventy five buck, and I didn't shoot him. It's the only time in my life I've ever done that. It was only because I had this huge really unique non-typical in the area but you know i've and i almost harvested that buck i didn't but i thought i don't know that i could ever bring myself to do that again i I was texting matt up on the mountain i'm like i can't believe i'm not shooting this deer he's a great deer so that was one very unique situation where i can say yeah maybe it made sense to pass him because i had this really world-class trophy animal that i was trying to find i knew was in the area but it's god those chances on on good mature deer are just few and far between and you know we were hunting out in colorado one year and we ran into another bow hunter and we kind of were hunting the same area and there was a group of bucks that had i mean there were seven or eight or nine just mature 165 to 185 type deer running together and I remember this kid said, yeah, there's one or two bucks in that group I would shoot. <laughs> I said, there's about eight or nine bucks in that group I would shoot just because <laughs> it's so hard to find those opportunities. And uh, to your point, if you set your sights a little too high, you know, you're going to look back and realize you missed some good opportunities on some deer that may have been a 160 buck, but they may be seven, eight, nine year old deer. And that's that's a challenge in and of itself. Man, it sure is. Yep. So, so you talk about like our our mutual friend is is Matt, and you hunt with Matt quite a bit. You guys are good hunting partners. Um, it sounds like you guys work pretty good with each other. Like you were talking earlier, and you said you stalked that buck, and you had um, you were both sixty yards away on on different sides. Do you guys make a lot of dual plays on deer? You know what we do, and, and you know that's. That's been one of the most effective ways that we have harvested animals together. We've both done it on our own. You know, Matt's harvested great deer on his own. I've harvested deer on my own. But man, when you got two guys or three working together and you got a buck where you can make a play, you know, Matt and I, a lot of times, we'll, if we can watch a deer long enough to get embedded up, we try to figure out what the wind's doing. We try to figure out where the buck's most likely escape route's going to be. And we try to set somebody up in an escape route or direction. Then the other guy moves in and tries to kill him out of his bed, and it's just you become so much more effective when you can hunt with somebody like that. You know, again, we've done it on our own. You do it on your own all the time, Brian. Um, and there's there's nothing I think more rewarding as a hunter than when you go in and harvest an animal on your own. I did this two years ago in Utah where I hiked up one day, found a group of bucks a long ways away, a few basins away, and I took all day and slipped in on and killed the buck I wanted. It was probably Oh, uh, it just one of a, a very very lucky stock I put on the steer to harvest him, and I felt so uh, rewarded and fortunate and benefit to have been able to do that. But the the odds increase so much when you have somebody you can hunt with and kind of tag team and work together, and then you have somebody to share it with too. Like when Matt's harvested stuff when I've been with him, or I've harvested stuff when he's been with me. It is so fun to be able to enjoy that with somebody and to share it with somebody. Um, and you know, our our friendship, Matt and I, has has stemmed from hunting and then it's bled into everything else you know now we're friends first um we hunt together and you know we're the best of friends but it's a blessing to have a guy and i and i'm hoping guys listening to the podcast feel like they have that guy or two 
um, that they can work together on. But we do. Matt and I do a lot of tag teaming on these deer, and your odds just skyrocket when you got somebody you're working with. Um, you know, that's where I really start to feel like, okay, this buck has four ways he can go, and we've covered two of them. And that's what happened this weekend. You know, we had this buck. We were pinching in and i thought he's not he can either go up or down i don't think he's going to go up and i don't think he's going to go down he's going to go left or right well he went down and we we didn't end up harvesting him but the odds just start to go in your favor when you have somebody like that that you trust that you're kind of on the same page with and there's absolutely no matt and i it's there's no um competitiveness between us on who gets what animal i mean we spotted these deer this weekend and matt said okay you're up you get positioned where you want to be, and I'll make I'll try to sneak in and probably bump him to you. And it's just when you can do that with somebody, you become so much more effective as a hunter too. Man, you're right that you got to let go of the competitiveness and find those good hunting partners that you can work with. And and, and you have to be a good hunting partner yourself. Yeah. You have to be happy for your hunting partner when he gets opportunities and when he harvests. And you have to support each other, and you have to want to see the other person succeed just as bad as you want to succeed. And, and working with each other like that, and I've got a couple good hunting partners that I like to hunt with. One that I hunt with a lot, Dan, that I'm going to go to Idaho with here in a few days. Um, but yeah, working together, covering those escape routes, and then and then also like there's this added motivation too. Like I love what you say, sharing the hunt together because we can remember those hunts almost far better than I can remember the solo hunts. And you get to kind of laugh together, and then yep. you encourage each other, and you stay up there for more days, and you hunt harder. And, and then you have another person glassing. You can glass from multiple different vantage points, and you share what you see. And so you get to gather more information that way. And maybe you didn't see any deer that day, but your hunting partner located 10 bucks or located 4 bucks, and he's got to play over the hill. Um I think when you can hunt in a in a partnership where you really support each other like that, you're way more effective than you are by yourself up there. Yeah, I have no doubt, and you enjoy the experience more too. I mean, Brian, you do a ton of solo hunts. I've done them my whole life, and you just enjoy the experience more when you have somebody to talk to. Um, if you if you don't, you're you're a unique individual. Um, I, you know, a lot of us like solitude in the mountain, and we like to get away. But when you have somebody there to help you and to talk to you and your friends, that hunt becomes more enjoyable. You don't feel, you know, you don't feel like you're, you know, alone on an island somewhere. You have somebody not just to share it with, but it keeps it keeps it light. You know, I talked about this on an earlier podcast. Um, it helps keep it light. You laugh at it. You kind of make fun of each other. You know, nobody ribs me more than Matt, and I nobody I don't give anybody a harder time than I do Matt. We had fun together, and I but I do think too that it helped Brian that you know I had harvested some good animals in my time, and so had Matt. So when we met, we both had been there, done that. We had, and I think sometimes that gets hard for guys if you're hunting with somebody and you've never harvested an animal, and and your buddy has, or vice versa, or neither of you have, you probably feel more of a necessity to to want to harvest an animal, and it can cause you to be even selfish in certain ways and I so I think it did help that Matt and I both had kind of he'd harvested some great animals and I had too and when we started hunting together I think we both realized god we've kind of both been there done that let's help each other we don't have anything to prove to anybody and I think that really helped our friendship and our relationship and hunting to where now we see a good animal and Matt's almost pushing me out in the front I'm almost pushing him saying you know so I, I we're very fortunate that way and I encourage anybody listening to try to think about that as you're as you're looking at your hunting buddies and the guys you spend time with in the field um, by far you will be more effective if that's your approach 
Yeah. Well, and that dynamic between each other where you're pushing each other on the stock, like that's the type of friendship you need in the mountains. You you can't have that competitive trying to edge each other out. And you almost have to fight your natural instincts. And now, yeah. you know, we've been doing it so long and hunting with people so long that, that we want to encourage them and see them being successful. And like you say, we've been there and done that a little bit and killed some nice deer and we still want to kill more, but we want to see our buddies be as successful as yeah. we are. And when your friends are successful, it makes you all that much better too. And it really does. And I, you know, it's, it's almost, I have so much fun. You know, there's been a couple of years where I've, I've harvested early or even that I haven't had a tag and I almost have more fun just going out and helping guys because the, <laughs> it's kind of funny, but the pressure is kind of off and you can just kind of go and, and take it all in and enjoy it. But I think it says a lot about people when, they're not the one always killing, but the guys around them are always harvesting animals. I think that's that's something to take note of that if you know certain guys that pound it and and everybody in their group has opportunities and you know I that that I think that just adds to the experience you know and there's a lot of guys now that hunt like you know it's not just me and there's a lot of guys that hunt like this and they're probably nodding their heads saying yeah I love it when I get to help my buddy shoot an animal or I love it when somebody else helps me their their experience is so much more rewarding it is well and it it just always seems to get paid back twofold. It seems like when I send somebody on a giant deer or I send somebody on a giant bull or say they're successful, like like they they almost work harder to get you an opportunity after yeah. they've harvested one like that. And so that's why you and Matt are pushing each other on stocks because you guys have helped each other kill some some monster deer before, you know, and, and so you almost – you feel like you don't feel like you own, but you but you do. You know, if a buddy's yeah, with yeah. me and he's helped me out, I know if we're out and it's the next season and it's bear season or it's elk season, you know, we may see the the biggest bull in the woods or the biggest bull I've ever seen, and I'm gonna send him for the stock because you know I harvested last time and I remember that that experience that that he gave me and helped me with and helped me pack it out of the mountains and pretty much gave up his entire hunt for me. Like I want to make sure that I pay him back and make sure that he gets you know a bunch of encounters after that so it does come back to you twofold i think when you when you're helping buddies out and helping them be successful yeah i i 100 percent agree i think it's the karma thing i think when you're helping guys and you're working hard for other guys it does come back it always comes back and and you know this conversation we're having i just had with somebody this morning about karma about when you're good to guys and you're helping guys it does come back to you in some way shape or form i'm a huge believer in that yeah, no, I am too. Yeah, um, no, I'm a big believer in karma too. We uh, we always call it the karma cloud, or yeah, we're, yep, we're it's you coming. know, Good it, or bad, and, it's coming, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> and me and my buddies are always joking around with each other, and like we're we're always uh, trying to race each other to pick up litter in the woods if we see a piece of litter because I've I've said it before, you know, that it's a good karma cloud, you know, and so I'll stuff yep. any piece of trash I can find in my bag, and and one year I did it, and I remember uh, me and Dan were hunting, and I I ended up hard harvesting a giant buck like on day nine or something and so i kept teasing dan that it was my karma from having yeah, a bag full a of trash up, yeah. so so dan <laughs> dang near races me for trash nowadays because that's kind of our joke yeah. you know they yeah, get a good karma it. cloud following you but it's fun. It's fun to share it with buddies too, and and fun to see them be successful. I, I'm like you. It takes kind of the pressure off too when you're when you're hunting, trying to help somebody else be successful. Like you don't have the the high pressure, but you still get all the excitement and all the enjoyment of a hunt. Yeah, and it's been fun. I to see my boys 
take up hunting and my son easton a couple years ago my oldest son harvested and his first deer with the bow brian it was almost a 30 inch four point and it's such a funny story behind it um but i was so happy for him that yeah i as competitive as we are with hunting and all the time and effort we put in we all know that we're chasing the next trophy but it's sure uh if you're only dictating your success by what you harvest you know, that's just, in my opinion, that becomes so myopic and you become so wrapped up in your own success, you're missing the true experience. So, yeah, obviously we're on the same page there and I I encourage anybody to look at it that way because it just makes the experience so much more enjoyable. I've been very blessed and lucky to be surrounded in the woods by good guys that almost always seem to have that approach. Yeah. So um, you say a lot of times you set up on escape routes and then have one guy stock. That's also how me and Dan have played it before. Um, so when you find a good buck, uh, flip a coin or you send the yep. other guy or however it is, and then you play the escape route. Like, And a lot of times it seems like that guy on the escape route is more successful than the guy stalking. So I don't know which way you want to win the coin flip when you do it. But well, that's do you guys find you, it that way too? Oh, yeah. That's how we – almost nine times out of ten when we've been successful, it's not the – we call it the bumper. It's not the guy going – you know, the guy that goes in to stalk in on – you know, it's just so hard to stalk in on a mule deer in his bed in the high country. It just is. They are they almost always position themselves where they're looking, where they're most vulnerable. And I, I just laugh at how often they actually do play the wind where if the wind's coming one way, you know, they're facing the other way. And But nine times out of ten when we've taken this approach, it's the guy that sets up up in the escape route is the one we know is going to probably get the shot. Um, the guy that moves in, you know, he's moving in to kill. He's slipping in. He's in stealth mode. He's trying to kill the animal. But we both kind of know he's probably not going to kill it because it's so hard. And when that animal bumps, it's usually guy number two that's actually in the better position. And that's how we play it. Um, and uh, so I don't know who wins that. Co- usually with us, the guy – and we don't even flip a coin. It's usually, hey, I bumped for you last time. Or so you're up this time. It's it's that easy. But usually, yeah, it's the guy that's set up on the, on the escape route that tends to get the opportunity. Okay. Well, and you were saying that you spent two days sitting on a saddle that deer move through. So you were kind of sitting on an escape route because you knew guys would be in there the first couple of days of season, and you were thinking these deer would move through that saddle. Yeah, that's what generally out here opening weekend on the bow hunt, even though we're in high country and it's backpacking stuff, there's just more guys out and about. There are, and they move deer out of their normal travel pattern. So even if we have a deer located that's kind of in a routine and, and doing the same thing, we know that could be blown you know, out the door when guys are coming in uh, opening morning in the dark. Um, so we just usually on the opening weekend, again, it's public land and there's guys moving through and so we usually do try to play an escape route, kind of hoping that we know these deer are in the area, and chances are they're probably going to get bumped. And over the years, we've seen the deer go here. In fact, this is a, this is a scenario that I used in Colorado a couple of years ago, and it was so funny. Uh, we hunted the same area, high country out in Colorado, for two or three years in a row, and it, always watch these deer from across the drainage i i watch these deer always file through this pass opening weekend so the following year i ended up going in early and i built a blind in that pass and i went up and i slept in that blind for three days just sun sun up to sundown i was sleeping in this blind at twelve thousand feet and they had this freak snowstorm come through and i was freezing and nothing came through that pass and i ended up actually harvesting a deer 
oh, on day four or five where I actually finally just said, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I went out and caught one in his bed and killed it. But, you know, that can be a really frustrating way to hunt too because you want to get out and create your action. But I've realized over time, God, sometimes you just got to set up in a, in a, in a very strategic location. And if you got a deer coming to you, it's so much easier to kill them than when you're trying to move in on them, but you don't get as many opportunities. So that was a situation out there where I just got it handed to me. And, uh, uh but and what's funny is that blind is still there. I, I built it out of rocks and, and branches. And now I go on Google Earth and you can zoom in and you can see this blind sitting in this pass out there. So it's still there. <laughs> That's funny. Well, and a lot of it's just paying attention to deer movement too, isn't it? Just like you found in Colorado, you watched it for two years and watched deer file through there. I noticed me just sitting back on a vantage point and watching deer. Like you get a, you get to figure out their tendencies and where they like to move through and where they escape through. Just watching them feed and move through to bed, like pretty soon you can start to say, gosh, I've seen them come through that saddle four or five times now. Like that's where I need to be yeah. or, or that's the escape route. Yeah, what you you bring that up. The guys that I are, are the guys that I know that consistently harvest animals. Again, I'm referring to mule deer, high country stuff. That you know, that is that is the approach a lot of them take if they have the luxury to kind of watch these deer and figure. Sometimes you don't because you go into a new area, public land, and you don't have a lot of time to figure these animals out. But I think Brian, you harvested an animal, a mule deer here in Utah that was an unbelievable 200 inch plus mule deer, and that's kind of the approach you took, where you went in, you found him, you found him, you watched him and waited for the opportunity, and it was a number of days down the road before you felt like okay. He's put himself where I need him to be, and you felt like everything was right, and you moved in and killed this buck, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, uh, s- sat in there for seven days watching him, and yeah, I had made one play, and I I bumped him. The wind swirled. I was in bow range for – gosh, I was in bow range for over an hour waiting for him to stand, and when he stood up, he was butt-facing me, and he just walked away from me and walked over the drainage, and I knew he caught my wind. And so then back up to that ridge I went where I was just watching and waiting and watching and waiting. And then, yeah, a couple, two, three days later, I caught him again and and finally in a good spot in there and able to move down and get him. But, yeah, you're right. If you can be patient with these things and wait for your time to close in or or see how they're crossing or moving through country and trying to put yourself in front of them, um, you're right. It's so much easier to, to harvest a buck, you know, when he's coming to you than when you're trying to come to him. Yeah, and I, I again, a lot of that is sometimes it's tough to have that kind of patience. There's not a lot of guys that could sit on a deer that long. There's, you know, I would be looking at my phone knowing uh, I want to sit on this deer again tomorrow and the next day, but I got stuff going on at home I got to get back to. So it's tough. There are times. Sometimes on public land where you have to be more aggressive, you know, I got a limited window, I got one or two or three days to hunt, and I got this buck found right here. You may have to push it a little bit in those situations um, because you may not have the luxury to sit and wait on an animal. But if you can wait them out till the time is right, um, I just – there's a lot of guys when they're consistently harvesting big animals. I know that's the approach they take is they seem to develop a sense of I need to push it here and be more aggressive or no, I need to – I need to sit back and let this thing unfold a little bit before I make my move. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and I'm like you. I like to make plays and I like to 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 make stocks on animals. You know, I never stock recklessly, but I'm looking for a high percentage play. But you know, you can also get in trouble. Like I've found giant deer before that I that I sit on too long, where I'm almost waiting for too perfect of an opportunity 
that never presents itself and you sit on them for three, four, five days and then you finally end up making a play and you end up bumping them anyways and you got to start over at square yeah, one yeah. where, you know, you, it's a fine line between, you know, being patient and being aggressive. And I think it's just experience that, that dictates, you know, when to go all in and make a play. And I think it's when you think you can harvest that animal, when you think the wind's in your favor and it's a high percentage play, that's where you go for it. When you think it's low percentage, you might yep. hold back a little bit. Well, and it's funny. We were, I've been on stocks where you get that. I call it spidey sense where you start to get goosebumps because you know, Okay, this is a good this is a good setup for us, and you know I that happened this weekend where I but you have these opportunities where again because of my history hunting mule deer, my experiencing hunting them, when you have a good big mature mountain muley, and the situation you know is a good one, you start to it's almost like I again I get goosebumps thinking okay this is this one is a good one this is a good situation, and then there are other times you just feel like eh, I'm gonna go for it. Because I kind of have to, but I'm not feeling great about it. But in those situations where my, my spidey sense starts to tingle, I think, okay, this is a good situation. This one may happen. Um, and those are fun. Those are the ones we kind of laugh at after thinking, God, that felt good. That situation felt good. And you start to develop kind of a sense for that. Boy, you sure do. Uh, and I I always try to, when I catch them in a good spot, I'm always hustling to get there when they can't see me or when I'm yep. you know, hidden behind a, a hill or in timber. But it seems like I move pretty quick until I get to that couple hundred yards, you know, and then I start to slow down. But I think in mule deer hunting or any bow hunting, it's knowing about, it's knowing when to slow down. Like I yeah. move quick, dang near, I've jogged at deer before to try to close the distance and get there before they get up and move again. But then you got to know when to slow down and really start moving slow. And, you know, inside a hundred yards, I always say, when you think you're moving slow enough, slow down. Cause you're not, you know, you're, you're not. Yeah. 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 But it's knowing when to slow down. Do you guys do the same thing when you catch a buck in a good spot? Are you hustling to try to make it there? Oh yeah. Yeah, there again. There are times, and you, this I think comes to you over time as you hunt, and it's different in certain terrain too. My approach when I grew up hunting in southern Utah was totally different than what I'm doing high country. Uh, but yeah, there are times when you realize I have a window here, and you got to go. I, I was laughing. I was I grew up hunting in another area in southern Utah. <laughs> I caught this huge typical one day feeding across this flat, and it was this flat of sagebrush and this. This buck was out feeding, and I'm sitting there trying to figure out how I'm going to stalk in on this deer, and then I see this cow just 60 yards below me starting to work out in that flat towards the deer and it was like all of a sudden something said go and i ran down and got behind this cow and this cow was walking down a cow trail and i just followed this i was literally just tiptoeing behind this cow it probably looked ridiculous but this cow almost walked me right into this deer but it was like in that moment something said you got to go this is your window so there are times yeah where you sit back and you analyze the situation and then there are times when you realize, okay, I got to act now. This isn't. This window is not going to stay open for very long. And you know, those are the situations that get kind of crazy, where you get within 150 yards, and then, as you say, everything kind of slows down. But um, it, I think a lot of it's just recognizing this is the time I need to act, and you're willing to just go and jump on it. <laughs> That's so funny, following that cow down to oh, that. Oh yeah, you would have laughed. It probably, and I was, I was hunkered down, sneaking behind the cow, and the cow would stop and look at me like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> so I didn't harvest that deer, but that cow actually walked me to thirty yards, and the deer just got behind some brush, and it was a huge typical. Um, but yeah, the whole time I was doing it, I was wondering if anybody was watching because it probably looked ridiculous, but it almost worked. 
Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, that's wild. But but you're right. It is like it's like these instincts we just draw from past experiences and you almost got to realize that this is my all in moment, you know, and and you also like you mess up enough stocks and you you mess up enough plays on deer where you go, gosh, that wind was really bad over there. I should have waited till it got later in the morning when the thermals were rising up or, you know, boy, I should have just waited that, you know, is low percentage because that two point was above that buck and I ended up blowing the two point out. And so you just kind of learn from your mistakes and you try to just log all that in your, in your, in your memory or it, it almost comes second nature. And then, you, you just all those past experiences go to help develop your instincts of knowing when you think you can kill that thing or when your spidey yep. sense goes off and that's where you go all in and go for it you know and it doesn't and I, always and, I, and i'm and i'm yeah to what you were just going to say sorry to cut you off i'm so glad i failed on so many stocks i am so glad because i've learned from it and so when it does come together you appreciate it cuz you you're remembering and again that's why i want to start writing more of these down where when you do have success, you appreciate it because of all these opportunities that that accumulate over time that you, it wasn't successful, and it, and it makes you understand that when it does happen, you know. And that's what's interesting too, Brian, is everything that gets killed now is posted up. We see big deer every day getting posted up. It's incredible to me how many of these good deer are being harvested by bow hunters, but it gives this false sense of. Um, that it happens all the time. You know, we're seeing animals every day posted that are just incredible. And I think a lot of guys almost get the sense that it should happen all the time, and it just doesn't. Um, we're just seeing everything that gets harvested now. When I was a kid growing up, I remember going and buying magazines, hunting magazines, and there would be a couple stories of local guys that harvested big animals, and they were like the heroes. They were the, the guys that you'd want to meet someday because they harvested this big animal, and it didn't happen very often. And now with everything getting posted up and all the advancements in technology and hunting gear and everything that's happened, you get this sense that it happens all the time, and it's just so hard to actually get it to happen to you that you know it's sometimes it's hard to not lose perspective there that it doesn't happen all the time it doesn't the the success rate on high country mule deer with the bow is just not very high no absolutely you're absolutely right but we we see it all and almost expect it but yeah it just doesn't come easy yeah. it takes years of dedication and hard work to maybe get one of those or one opportunity at a buck like that so so you're right it does kind of give a false sense and it you know those those big deer like that, it takes, you know, at least for me, you know, it just isn't automatic. It's almost like you have to make all those mistakes and learn from them to be able to harvest a deer like that. And whether it's messing up on those stocks and learning from those and how to get in close and and then pretty soon you get dialed in on how to get close yep. and and you still get busted but your percentage is way higher but then you got to get in and you got to miss some deer and you got to miss yep. some good deer i you know i think i missed the world record typical and and i i snuck <laughs> you up too? on <laughs> good well i'm glad i'm yeah. not the only one it's a common theme that you know you 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 just mess up and you have to learn from it but yeah i had that this buck that i had been watching and made a play down an avalanche shoot and i mean i could have 
I had the buck bedded at about 50 yards, and I, I ranged this tree down below me at 40 yards, and I thought, okay, I think he's going to come out this way, and I'll shoot him at 40. Well, this buck came out and had no idea I was there. He was just feeding on grass, and, and instead, of, you know, I could have eaten a sandwich, range-finded him, and shot him, but instead, I knew that tree was 40 yards, and he walked behind it, and I ended up shooting low because the buck was 45 yards. I shot right uh-huh. underneath him, but it, it takes, like, messing up on those big deer, making those yeah. mistakes to then... Then log that in your memory bank to know next time I'm going to eat a sandwich and range find that buck and kill him, you know, and <laughs> instead of miss that shot right away. But you, you've got to mess up about every yeah. scenario up there. And, and you can definitely shorten the learning curve, you know, and by making the right moves and, and having the right mental checklist to, to be successful. But it, it isn't just those guys out there that are listening, you know, some of these guys that have missed a shot on a big bull or a big buck. It isn't just you. We've all missed. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, I think of a buck I missed. It was it's been 11 years ago, and I got in on, on his in his bed. I thought he would have been the Utah State record typical. He was 200 inch plus typical. I, he was that caliber of deer. I I did think at the time he would have been the state record. I get in. I got in on him while he was bedded at his level. I had him at 22 yards bedded, and he was looking the other way. And I got caught out in the open. I had nowhere else to go. But you know, I was I knew the wind was going to swirl on me. And that's another thing when you get in and tight on these deer. It's just a matter of time before the wind busts you, and usually it's sooner rather than later. Usually when I get within 100 yards, I know i got a very limited window of time hoping something happens before you're busted. So I get in on this deer, had him at 22 yards. He stood up and turned and faced me in one motion. So he, the wind was good. He didn't smell me. It was just time for him to go, and he got up and turned, and I was sitting there hunkered down. I didn't have time to draw yet. So he starts walking towards me, and I'm counting 20 yards, 19 yards, 18 yards. He gets to 18 and notices me, so I crank my bow back, and at that time, they didn't have the fully enclosed arrow rests out yet. So I pull back as fast as I can, and my arrow, I thought, fell off my rest, but I didn't have time to sit and fiddle with it with my front hand, so I put my 20-pin on this buck put it on the center of his chest, lowered it a little, and let it fly. And it felt perfect, and it flew five feet to the left because it wasn't on my rest. <laughs> Stuck into this ponderosa pine. He took off, and I'm sick. I left that arrow in that tree. So this is clear up in an avalanche chute, clear, clear high. And I have walked past that tree, I think, three times over the last 11 years and looked at that arrow because it reminds me that – God, even in a situation like that, things can go wrong. Things do go wrong. Learn from it. Let it motivate you. If you ever come out to Utah, Brian, I'll walk you to this tree, and you can look at this 11-year-old arrow sticking out of this tree. It's my reminder that oh, when you do harvest an animal, it's they're tough to come by up there, and, and usually little things that can go wrong do. Oh man, don't they though? But but you get better at it. You yeah. you you start learning and you you know all of a sudden your your proficiency goes way up, you know, and all of a sudden then you start to get, you know, once it starts to click, then it seems like you you've got it dialed in and like you don't mess up on your execution or making sure your arrows on your rest. Now we got full containment, that isn't a problem, but you know what I mean? Like everything yep. starts to click and you don't make those big mistakes anymore. Now if you make a mistake, you know, for me a big one now or the thing I've been focused on is is getting a good range like um if you don't have a good range you know i'll miss and like i've messed up where i'm trying to shoot the horns of a deer and i thought i had a good range and he stood up and i missed him and it actually didn't get the range on the horns it got the tree behind it yeah that happened to me last year colorado i had a bucket 55 and i thought i had ranged him and i ranged 
I was hitting the brush behind him at 65, and I shot over him. And yeah, it, you know, it, and it's interesting. There are times we we I look back now at opportunities that I miss, and there are times you say, "God, you know, I really don't know that I could have done anything different. That felt good. That one wasn't on me." And then there are other times you're like, "Yeah, that one was on me. I missed that up. I should have played it different." But there are more and more scenarios over time because of the experience where you think, you know what, I really played that as good as I could. It just didn't go my way, and it happens. It usually, That's usually what happens, but you start to be able to delineate, this was me, I should have played that different, or, oh, I don't know, that one just didn't go my way. Um, you start to be able to, to kind of pinpoint where you did things appropriate and right and where things just went south on you due to Mother Nature. Well, and I think that honest uh, analysis of what went wrong and how it went wrong and like actually looking at, you know, what you did, that's how you learn from it and that's how you get better. And I I think for guys out there, like the, the, the calmer you can make yourself in that crunch zone and the more patient you can be too, waiting for <laughs> that right angle, not trying to yeah. force a shot. Like, I don't know about you, like you have the same experience that I have bow hunting. It seems like we've been into a bunch of animals and messed up, but I know I've screwed up some opportunities by trying to to force a shot into a spot where I should have just waited and had him stand and had a big broadside yeah. target, but like trying to make those two high high a degree of difficulty shots or trying to just slip it in there in between a couple branches, that doesn't usually work out good for me. Yeah, and you know, you gotta know your limitations and I think that's something that's different for everybody. But there are some shots you just shouldn't take and other shots that present themselves that you know are good and I'm laughing as we're talking because I was hunting with a friend of mine a couple of years ago and got in tight on a good buck and just missed. I just I just got rattled. I was so ex- I still get so excited and so worked up that there are times I'm just you're just shaking and you're like, "Good night, get a hold of yourself." <laughs> and I I miss this buck and he, you know my buddy's like, "What happened?" I was like, "I just melted. I just I just <laughs> lost it." So it's and I'm glad that still happens. Um, you know that's sometimes that is the most difficult thing is to just keep yourself calm because I mean that opportunity I just blew it I just absolutely botched I was so excited and I just kind of had to laugh like yeah I just I melted down that was all on me and it still happens and that's probably one of the things I I have to mentally try to overcome and as these good situations present themselves now is to try to get myself (laughs) kind of calmed down because Again, I think, Brian, I know a good situation when it comes up and they're few and far between and it's almost like, okay, you know this is a really good situation, so just calm calm down, <laughs> relax a little bit, you know, and, and uh, so I laugh looking back because that, that's happened to me so many times where I have made the mistake because I get so excited for the opportunity that's about to come and it's so hard to talk yourself through your mental checklist of you know that routine you get into when you pull back how you settle your pin how you put your finger on you start to have to go through that mental checklist and it's hard to do that in the moment it's a mental part of the grind of bow hunting that so many guys get to that opportunity that they've worked so hard for and they and and i I say they i mean me too me too i have to go i have to go through my checklist or i find myself wanting to do this instinctual pull up put my 40 pin on and blow it up and i have to calm myself down bring my pin i always have to bring my pin from the top down um and i I have to go through that checklist and although sometimes you got to do it fast that's the part i think a lot of us struggle with is in the moment slowing things down just a little bit to go through that methodical checklist before the shot. 
Yeah, uh, you're so right. Uh, it's so funny. Yeah, and I do the same thing. I get excited, and you know, your your pin just doesn't aim as good when you're aiming at an animal yeah. than it does in your flip flops in your backyard. Yep. And so you got to take that in account, you know, when you when, when you're practicing outside and you come up with your effective yardage. And we all have different skill sets and different yardages we're effective at. But I know for me, one of one of the big lessons I've learned too is is to sneak in closer and kill that thing. You know, is yep. you know, I I know I'm effective and I know I can shoot at some of these outer reaches and may not be outer reaches for some of the top shooters, but I, you know, I know I can shoot, but I'm just not as good a shot on animals as I am in the backyard. And so I know that I know I've got to subtract, you know, 10, 15, 20 yards off my effective range, because if, if I'm trying to aim at a, at a giant buck at 65 or, or, you know, something like that, then my pin just isn't going to aim as good as it does in the backyard. And so I'd rather get into 50 and know I can hit that thing and know I can kill him even when I've got a shaky pin or excitement going on. Yeah, and you got to know your range, and it's different for everybody. And you know that debate goes on and on about what a ethical range is, and it is different for everybody. But I think we all have to come to terms with, God, this shot is just too far for me. You know, I have a cousin of mine that just killed the deer at like seventy-five yards, and he shoots and shoots and shoots all the time, and he was comfortable with it, and he harvested a deer, and then somebody else would say that's unethical, and. My response is just know your limitations, know when you're out of your effective range and know when to hold off on pulling the trigger, whether it's a gun or a bow. But I, my range seems to be getting tighter and tighter over the years, Brian, where I, you know, anything, I, I'm just more cognizant now of, God, do I really feel good about this shot? And if not, to your point, get a little closer or just don't shoot, don't take it. Yeah, you're so right and it um yeah and I I've just had to learn the lesson my the hard way where I I know that's my effective range and I know I can shoot that but you know I I'm, I'm just too excited on animals to be able to execute yep. a good clean shot right there and and I you know yeah can I kill him there? Yeah, I, I can probably kill him there but it's not going to be every time, you know, and I want to yeah. shoot a shot that I'm good at every time. I want to know I'm going to kill him when I release that arrow. Yeah, and that's again, mine has changed. There are some years I feel like I'm so dialed in and I can shoot great out to so far. And other years you're just struggling with things. That's part of the, you know, the the processing part of bow hunting is it does change year to year and you get into a different bow or you try a different broadhead or use a different arrow and change your draw length a little, use a different release and all this stuff affects the way you shoot and you can't stay in the same place over time. Bows advance and gear advances and as these little things change, you start to change how you feel at certain ranges and some years it's better than others and you know i think we just have to be aware of that um at least i am because i you know last year we had multiple opportunities in colorado that were long range and i just wasn't good and i that's when i had to matt and i both kind of had to say we need to try to tighten up this shot a little bit because we're probably looking and thinking and taking shots that are out of our effective range and so we have to recalibrate that every year too i think uh, yeah, I think that's a good point. You do have to recalibrate it for every year you're out there hunting. And and I know, too, like out at those longer distances, you know, I shoot such a, a short draw length that, you know, if, if I'm a yard different, that makes a big yeah. difference on my shot. Two yards, I'm going to miss that animal. And, and I just know hunting these different places and different elevation and different temperatures with the bow, you know, there's so much variance there that even though sometimes I can shoot at those ranges, like uh, it's going to be different at my house at 5,000 feet than it is in Colorado at 13,000 feet or even Colorado when I shot at 9,000 feet before I left my truck. And so there's just so many variables yeah. there that I just know, you know, 
I think I just want to get a little bit closer and just know he's a dead deer, you know, or know he's yeah, a dead and every, bull. And, every, that's, and that's a win-win for everybody. And I, as, I think as long as we're all cognizant of that and willing to admit it, you know, know your limitations and nobody's Superman every day all year long. And there are times I've just felt – I have not felt steady and good and calm and other times you feel good and then – so that's it. That is very situational, but something I, you know, changes for me all the time. And, and, uh, you know, I've passed up shots. Uh, in fact, a couple of years ago, I had a buck in Utah bedded at 65 yards and he's a 160 buck. I'm looking at him right now. And then another buck behind him on the hill that was a 185 typical stepped out at like 102 or 100 and started. And I, they came down to, I had to make a decision and I, I ended up shooting the smaller buck because I knew I could hit the shot, and I wasn't comfortable shooting 90, even though he was a much better deer. I just wasn't comfortable with it, and I ended up harvesting a, I know, a good pope and young deer, but there was a much better animal behind him on the hill a little further. And I, you know, Matt was above me watching the whole thing, and when I shot, he was far enough away he couldn't tell, and he saw the deer scatter, and he said, "What'd you do, Kip?" And I said, "Well." What do you think I did? And he Matt thinks about it for a minute. And he said, I think you shot the 160 buck. And I said, yeah, because he knew I, I didn't feel good about this longer shot on, on an animal and ended up taking a good one. But I had to, in that moment, try to decide which one do I feel more comfortable according to my skill set right now. And I, I ended up making a good shot on that buck. But I don't know that I could have hit the other one in an ethical way. So. Oh, good for you. Those are tough decisions we have to yeah, make. Yeah, it was and, a tough one. Yeah. And, and the gear nowadays will will shoot out to distances like that with the rangefinder knowing the exact yardage, and we practice out at those ranges, and the bows will shoot that, but under adrenaline and high stress and on a hillside and buck standing there. And like you say, it's it's always changing. You, it's how you feel and how your confidence is at the moment. But that's a tough decision to make, but you made the right one. Now you got a buck on the wall and, yeah. and you made the right shot. Yeah, and I, you mentioned rangefinders. I laugh um, as I'm thinking about conversations I've had recently. There was an article written recently about um, you know bow hunting and all the advancements in gear and technology. And at what point is it really not bow hunting or primitive weapon hunting, so to speak? But I, I we got talking, and I said, you know, the one advancement made in technology that has changed everything in archery hunting was rangefinders. I remember as a kid, you know, I worked landscaping all summer long, and I would. Every time I walked to a sprinkler line or every time I walked to change a head or every time I walked to the lawnmower, I was always guessing the yardage and then walking it off to try to enhance my skill set for bowing to see, okay, that looks like 60. I'm going to guess 60 and I'd walk it off and I was always trying to get better at judging distances and, and with range finders that you know, 99% of the time when guys shoot, they range find it first. And so that has completely changed the landscape of bow hunting. And I think in a good way, because a lot of the animals that were getting wounded, you know, it's because you're off on your yardage. You're in, you know, five, 10 yards makes a huge difference. So the one advancement I think that has been a very good advancement in bow hunting has been the ability for, you know, everyday guys to carry a range finder with them. So they know ahead of time the distance of the shot. Um, that, that that's just been a game. It's that's changed the way I hunt. That's changed the way I set my bow up. That's changed how fast I'm trying to shoot, how heavy I'm trying to shoot. Because I know now, God, 90% of the time I'm going to range find that first, so I don't have to be shooting 300 feet per second or whatever. That so that's been a huge advancement in a very good way, I think. Oh, you're so right. It's been a game changer. Yeah. And I, I was just in the early years of having to judge yardage like that, but I am horrible at judging yardage. And even nowadays that I rely upon a rangefinder, anytime I have to guess a yardage, I usually miss. Yeah. And you're usually not off. It's not even close, right? Like we were doing that this weekend and 
you know, we were guessing stuff. And I, I, I when I was younger, I was actually I got really good because I thought about it and did it all the time. I remember walking, you know, at school in high school, I would be walking to my car and I'm guessing yardage is just because I'm always thinking bow hunting. And I now I just I don't know if what's happened, but that's just gone. <laughs> like if somebody took rangefinders away now, I'd be in big trouble. Oh, me too. Um, and, yeah, and they have the, the you know the angle compensation. It's all good, and that's an I think that obviously has changed the way and the success rate of bow hunting is the fact that now most of the time you're going to get a good range on what you shoot, and then it comes up to okay, is that an effective range for me? I know the range. Can I shoot that? So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I actually find that I'm most effective in that mid-range shot. Like uh, sometimes I get too close, and, and not too close. I mean, close is always good, and I love making close shots. But sometimes I'll punch my trigger really bad up close, or I won't yeah. try to get as good a range as I think I need, or I just won't execute my shot as good. Like I go on autopilot. Like I don't go through the process of executing a good shot yeah. to where when I'm in that mid-range, I know I've got to execute a good shot, and it's almost like I sit on my shot better. And so I've screwed up some close shots where you know I almost think half the time I'm, I'm good at those mid-ranges, and I have to remember that when I get in close, that I still yeah. have to execute, that I can't just punch off a, a willy-nilly shot. Yeah, there's these uh, – we have a friend of ours that lives down in Arizona that hunts coos deer you know, down on the border, and he is an unbelievable shooter at long range. And it's just because he's accepted on these coos deer in this terrain, I'm going to have to shoot long range. And he is – he's become so good at – he's such a good bow guy at knowing his bow, knowing the specs. But every shot for him is that routine. Every – you know, it's so, a little different than your point, but he knows – the shots I'm going to get are long shots, and that has become so methodical for him, almost just robotic to go through this routine. And and it's amazing to see how his range has lengthened because his mentality has been, I have to. I have to become better at long range. So what do I need to do to tweak my form? What do I need to do to tweak my you know, my setup with my bow? And he's done it, and man, he's become effective. Um, so I think sometimes knowing where you're hunting dictates the amount of time you need to spend spend or or not you know we go white tail hunting <laughs> half of these guys you know they're top 10 guys they know it's going to be a 20, 20 yard shot or nothing um then they've come out and hunted with us out here and they really had to change their uh kind of mental grasp of i'm gonna have to shoot 50 60 yards can i do that and a lot of that comes into play when you're practicing knowing realistically am i going to be shooting 20 yards straight down out of a tree or am i going to be out shooting 60 yards and i got to be comfortable with that Man, that's so true. Yeah, hunting those coos, they are. I mean, and and you can get them close, but that reminds me of like antelope. I I just finished up my antelope season here in Montana, but I uh, those antelope are kind of the same way. You're hunting open country, and and you know, you know, I don't take extreme long shots at them or hail marys. I want to make shots that I know I'm gonna make. But I, to to be honest, I do extend my range on them because I yeah. know most of my shots are going to come at those longer yardages, and yeah. and so you know you just get good at practicing those longer yardages and sitting on your shot. And the, it was so cool the the shot the other day. I uh, mom and sister had to work throughout the weekend, and so I had my youngest, my nine year old, with me, and so we were going out hunting and found a buck and made right a stock on. on it. And yeah, that thing came by, and I mean it stopped at sixty five broadside, and I sat on my you shot. 
hammered it. Wow. Oh, just, yeah, pinwheeled it. I mean, I stuck the arrow in perfect, and he ran over 40 yards, and it was a done deal. And my, my nine-year-old was so excited oh, and thrilled. So and then Yeah, I you saw know, that picture. That oh, was great. Oh, God, that was cool. Yeah, and so it was so neat to share it with her. But, you know, I just know on antelope, you know, to where that shot on, a, on another animal, I might sneak in a little bit closer, yeah. opt to sneak in. But I know antelope, we had scooted in and cut him off, and that was my opportunity, and I knew I could make the shot. But... But it it is hunting different animals sometimes have different effective yardages um, you know that you're willing to take. Oh yeah, we had a buddy uh, when we were hunting out in Illinois one year, Whitetail, and he shot this whitey at like 52 or 56 yards, and it was which you know when you're in a tree stand and you're shooting through timber, it feels like it's a mile. And uh, anyway, it's funny out there you, when you harvest something, you kill a buck. It's like you don't go get it. It's down in the woods. Go back to your truck and wait for everybody to come. So you have to wait. You know, that's the first thing they say is, you know, I'll, we'll send a text out. Hey, Billy, we just shot a good whitetail. Okay, stay in your tree. Don't go get it. Stay in your tree or go to the truck. <laughs> so we have to go to the truck and wait. And every they round everybody up. It's, it, I mean, it's fun, but it's funny. They round everybody up, and you got your whitetail laying there 150 yards from the road down in a river bottom, and they got to unload their razors, and everybody piles in the razor, and you go driving down to the whitetail. And anyway, it's just funny, but in that situation, there, our friend had shot this deer at 50 plus yards and it was like the talk of the town that oh my gosh daryl shot this deer over 50 something yards and daryl was so proud of the shot he made and i'm just laughing thinking i'll come out to utah that's that's <laughs> kind an, of a chip it's an average yeah, shot it's a chip right shot out here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but it was funny just, it's just it was you know it's and again when you're hunting out of a tree stand shooting down and shooting through timber 30 yards can feel like a bomb out there on some of these white tail that are a little smaller, but totally different from, from, you know, geography to species of your hunt. And that shot changes. Huh. Yeah. You guys have uh, harvested some really nice white tails. It looks like you guys go out uh, every year and hunt those things, huh? You know, we do. And it's such a funny, I, I, I never, you know, I grew up, Brian, hunting one hunt a year. I remember growing up as a kid. We went on the rifle hunt with my dad, um, and I remember sitting out in front of the middle school waiting for my dad's truck to come down the road, and I would – God, I'd see my dad coming on Friday afternoon, and we'd load up and go on the deer hunt, and that's what I grew up with, one hunt a year, you know, that or bow hunting, but it was just – you had one hunt a year to hunt one deer, and, it, and so I, that's how I grew up, one hunt a year, and it wasn't until 10 years ago, really, that I got invited to go to Illinois, and I – I went out, and I cannot believe how much I love hunting whitetail now. I'm, nothing, I think, for me will ever replace my love and passion for hunting high country mule deer. But I love whitetail hunting now. And, and then we started hunting different species, and I've, I have just realized you can hunt year-round. I didn't grow up that way. I just That wasn't something that was even thought about now, and I realize now. And I, it, it makes me feel grateful that I have had the opportunity to hunt Colorado, to hunt Illinois, to hunt Indiana, to hunt Arizona, to hunt Utah. Because it's something you can kind of do year round, and if you're balancing everything else, you need to balance with work and home. Um, honestly, Brian, I get I get a couple spring bear hunts in with my kids in the spring, and then I do two or three hunts a year in the fall, and I feel lucky to do that because there's so much other stuff going on in life with with the more important things, your family and what they're doing. My daughter's playing volleyball in college now. My son, it's a junior of football. My other daughter's in gymnastics and volleyball. My other son's in football. I mean, we got so much going on. It makes 
me just appreciate if I can go on a couple good hunts a year, I eat it up. And that whitetail hunt, I never saw come. I never thought I'd enjoy it. You sit in a tree stand all day and it's freezing. And how could that be fun? And my goodness, I love that hunt. It is so fun. We have a great time. Man, that's cool. It's a it's a thinking man's game, right? Thinking where oh, your yeah. stand's going to sit. And then it's like a it's it's the mental toughness of being able to stay out and on that stand. Oh, and we were laughing last year. We went out and Matt killed literally the first 10 minutes of the first morning. He killed a, a great whitetail. It, it was like a one sixty something whitetail. Oh, it was a wow. great buck. He kills it the first morning, literally like in the first 10 minutes. He's done, and I sit all day, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. And on the night of day six, I, I killed a great buck, but it was – you know, it's funny how you just start to grind and you're sitting. So what I do now is I download audiobooks on my iPod, and then middle of the day when things slow down a little bit, I just put in one earpiece and I start listening to books on tape, and it helps. Um, but it's funny. It can happen on a dime day one, or you can grind it out for a week, and I love it. It is such a fun hunt. They're a fun species to hunt, aren't they? You know they are, and it's it's so new to me. And you realize so much of it is it, it's it's like this chess match. We used to go out there with our buddy Daryl, and Daryl would sit there every night, and he'd look at his phone and look at the wind direction. I mean, his email at the time was playing the wind at AOL dot com. You know, that's all he did was play the wind, and he had all these properties we could hunt. He'd say, okay, he'd lay out his maps, and he had all these dots of where his tree stands were, and it was just like this big chess match where we'd sit and watch Daryl and he'd move one map aside and move another and start to hone in if the wind's going to be doing this in the morning. And I always just thought, yeah, you just go climb up a tree and wait for something to walk under. And it is so much more than that. And I think that's why we enjoy it so much because it's like a ever changing chess match. And, you know, you're in checkmate here and you got to move a pawn here. And it's just, it's, I, I absolutely love that hunt. And a lot of it's the people we go back there. Now, my friend, Billy, we stay with my friend Billy out there, and, and it has become really a friendship thing. But when you – again, to our point earlier, when you're with good friends and you're hunting, it doesn't get much better than that. Man, yeah, you're so right. Well, I'm going to – I've hunted some whitetails and harvested a couple, mostly spot and stock around here in Montana. And this year I'm going for the first time uh, down to – or down to – over to Ohio. Uh, I've got a good buddy over there, and I'm just starting to meet these connections. And, and to your point of having friends that you enjoy to spend time around, it's the same thing. I, I, I'm meeting these guys around through uh, just different contacts or different people, and I meet them and invite them out. And so my buddy Clint, he came out here and hunted bears with his bow, and he's going to be out here and hunt antelope for a few days before he heads to Colorado. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I get to go out to his place in Ohio and and do some deer hunting there. And and, and he oh, gets you're gonna some... you're gonna eat it up, Brian. You're I, gonna, I can't it, wait. It'll open your eyes. It's so and it you know even though it pulls us there. There's a hunt out here in Utah that takes place in November. It's a rut hunt. It's the best time of year to hunt. And, you know, I get pulled away from that to go to Illinois to go hunt whitetail. That's how much I enjoy it. So it's you'll you'll absolutely eat it up. You'll tear it up. It's fun. Oh, man, that's cool. Well, I've been looking at uh, yours and Matt's pictures of some of those whitetails you guys have harvested over the years. You guys have got some good ones. You know, and we've been lucky. Again, so much of that whitetail is spending time in a tree. And during the rut in November, those bucks are cruising midday. And, you, you know, you can have them patterned all fall and then things just change in the rut. So when we go out, we do all day sits and it's a grind. It's tough. Um, so, but we, I, I remember our friend Daryl telling us if it's just about time in the stand, if you will spend time in the stand, 
you know, eventually something will come by you'll want to kill. And sometimes it is a grind through the week, and other times it happens right away. But um, it, most of it with whitetail is doing everything you can to control your scent, get high up in the tree, hang them high, keep your wind high, and then just putting the time in on the stand. And, you know, those guys, it's like a religion to them out there. They, everything shuts down during the rut, and they just hunt, hunt, hunt. And it's incredible to see if you're willing to do that. Uh, it, it, you know, it's fun. It's just a, it's a whole different network of guys out there that are big whitetail guys. We're just tapping into it. But they're some of my best friends now. My friend Billy, that he's come out to hunt Utah with, with us. Um, he's one of my dearest, closest friends now. Because you build that camaraderie during hunting that doesn't – you know there are other venues and areas in life you can build that in. But for me, a, a huge um, location and setting for me that I've established my strongest friendships have been in hunting. So, Yeah, it's so cool. No, you're so right. Like you, it, It's spending that time and I, I, it's just something you both have passion for. And so you, know, you spend time doing it, but you're always thinking and theorizing and then you're always oh, – yeah. <laughs> you know, you're always thinking back of the funny times that happened or, you know, the successful times you had or even the failures you had. But it, just that common thread, it, it seems like hunting buddies, yep. you know, those those are the best friends I have as well. And it, it, it doesn't matter oh, yeah. if we're hunting or if we're hanging out or, you know, hanging out at a kid's volleyball, whatever it is, you know, we just have built this friendship through hunting to now, you know, those are the, the best friends I have. Yeah, I'm that way. I don't I don't have a lot of friends, but the friends I have, I cherish more than most anything in life, obviously, other than my family. And it's funny how I look at that and this handful of guys that are my good, good friends. We hunt together, you know, for the most part. And 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 there's more to life than that. But when you share that common passion and you find those guys that you gravitate to that have it as well, it's it's such a great platform to build a friendship on. And, and kind of the other way, I've seen guys let it go lose friendships over over hunting and and you know kind of what we talked about earlier an animal that gets between two friends and i'll never let that happen i hope i hope i never get to the point where anything is more important to me than friendships but the friendships i have within hunting there's they're just i i laugh as i think about it because my closest friends we've shared so many good experiences hunting and, and i know we have a lot more to share and i'm grateful for it i just feel blessed that i have something i'm passionate about and it, to your point brian it's interesting how many guys you start to meet in this hunting industry you're more in the industry than i am but you start to meet these great guys and they're white tail guys from ohio and they're guys that hunt elk in new mexico and you start to connect with guys that are great guys and when you can start to help each other on certain hunts you know, the opportunities for guys like me that grew up doing one hunt a year, now I can do three or four or five, and I'm usually hunting with guys that have put me into an area or helped me with something. You know, I, it's fantastic that we have that opportunity now, and I hope and I hope to always try to keep those um, connections alive because there's so many good guys in this industry that are willing to, hey, let me help you out on this hunt, and I'd like to try this one, and you kind of do that, and it's, it turns out really good. Right? I know it. Um yeah, no, you've got such a good perspective on it. Like, like you're right. Like, you can't ever let a deer, elk, or hunting spot get in the way of two friends. And and you've got to make the right friends too. You know, some yeah. some guys aren't looking out for your best interest, but the guys that are, that you you become good friends and you look out for each other. That's a special thing. And your your family is definitely always number one, but friends are second. And yeah. you, and you yeah. gotta put yourself out there and do whatever you can to to be a good friend as well as a good hunting partner. Be, because it's important 
in life, and that's really where you get a lot of joy out of life. At least me is is sharing that with buddies and having that relationship with them. It, it, just like you, it's one of the most important things to me to make sure I'm always being a good friend. And and, and then you end up going over and above even what's expected yeah. of you, just because you you appreciate the connection you have together. You know, so that's a cool yeah, deal. Well, and I, we're, I'm blessed. I and I know that you, that you are too. Um, I have such good friends that I hunt with. And uh, over time, they mean more to you. You know, it's funny. I have a really good friend I went to high school with that lives down in southern Utah. And I, I had such a great experience in high school. I loved it. I was involved in sports and student body government and everything. And here it is 25 years later. And the one guy who is one of my absolutely closest friends in the world is the guy I, I hunt, hunted with in high school. Uh, you know, so it's funny how over time we define ourselves by what kind of husband and father and employee we are. But hunting becomes a huge part of how I define myself, whether whether it's conscious or not. I, uh, you know, my first priority is my my wife, and then my 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 wife and kids, and what kind of how I am with my relationship with God and my employer, and then it's this big part of me, such a big part of me is hunting, and that has influenced my decisions with my friends, my decisions, everything I do. There seems to be in the back of my mind this this this. Um, realm of hunting that seems to influence everything else I do, but I think it's a good thing for me. It's a healthy thing for me. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and and it does. It kind of revolves around hunting, but you know, hunting also makes me a better person. It gives yeah. me passion in my life, and when I'm up there, I'm able to press the reset button, and I'm able to reflect on on being a better husband and being a better father and yep. being better at work. And you you get perspective of what's important up there, and so you know, and I think that's why my family supports me so much in my passion of hunting is they know that you know when I'm when I'm home, I'm working to be the best dad and the <laughs> and the best husband I can be and the you know so that hunting for me too is a healthy thing and it it's borderline sometimes of being obsessive yeah, yeah. but our uh, wives are listening right now shaking their heads going these guys are these guys are not straight shooting right now they <laughs> I, I I just laugh there's been times where my wife is just like Kip you need to go hunting for a day or two just go <laughs> Because <laughs> she, you know, she she can tell that man Kip needs to just go for a day or two, and luckily she's great. But you know, I we I've had the opportunity recently to get more involved in looking at some of the data behind spending time in the wilderness, literally for therapy reasons for people that are not hunters, but for ther- and there is so much data behind. And so I'm not really talking hunting, but just in general, it is therapeutic to get into the mountains, and and the data isn't just homeopathic holistic medicine data that's put out there that you can't really translate into it's this is hardcore scientific psychological data that says people need to reconnect and 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 helping getting them into nature helps that and that's a huge part of how i grew up it's a huge part of who i am maybe it's not for everybody but for me it is so therapeutic to be able to go and i'm so glad i have that in my life i'm a better person for it to your point Man, absolutely. Well, and it's it's good to take a break from that that job stress and that it's good to take a break from those phones. Those phones are yep. so addictive nowadays, you know, and you have to really limit yourself and set a good example. You know, my kids are a little bit younger than yours, but I've got to set a really healthy example for them of putting my phone yeah. down every night and dinner every night and, you know, to make sure I'm not on that thing too much, but those things are addictive, you know, and they're yeah. enjoyable. We all use them and we use the benefits of them, but getting a break from those things is 
is so important. And when I can get to the mountains and take a break from that thing and, and just take a break from everyday normal life and you get up there and it's just this different perspective of what's important and what's important to you and where you want your life to head where you can't get that clarity when you're in it, you know, it seems like. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, there I some of the most um, powerful realizations I've had have been when I'm on the mountain. It's, that's kind of my temple and and uh, again, you got to keep that all balanced, which we all are trying to do. I know, but there are times you just need to, you know, I you just need to get up into quote your temple and clear your head a little bit. And so we're lucky, Brian, that we found that. You know, we're lucky that we have come to that realization. And and I, I it's something I'll never lose. But I'm grateful. At a young age, my dad had me in his hip pocket. My dad, my uncle Jim, had me in their hip pocket in the woods and i i am so grateful that my dad my uncle jim took the time to teach me to hike and to hunt arrowheads and to i made my first bow when i was like 11 and i got it broke but because because i shot at my sister in the house with it Um, (laughs) but i'm so grateful to my dad my uncle that took the time to take me out and here i am you know going into my mid-40s and i know that i need that um and so as i see more guys embrace bow hunting it's a good thing. I'm I'm glad that, you know, it's not a competitive thing for me to see more guys taking up bow hunting. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I know we're both kind of advocating is the challenge of bow hunting and what you can do in the mountains is a good thing. It's a healthy thing if you keep everything in perspective. Man, absolutely. Well, you do have really good perspective, Kip. Um, man, it's been really fun to talk to you on this thing. Um, well, I'll have to get you on here again after season and, and see how you did, but oh, I, I just yeah. I just can't thank you enough. It's such a great conversation. Thanks for being on with me. Oh, I appreciate it, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yep, uh, for sure. So we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right, that's a wrap. Um, really fun conversation with Kip Fowler. I, I just really enjoy talking to that guy every time I, I sit down and have a conversation with him. Just a, a, a great guy and a great hunter. And uh, I, I actually, we recorded this podcast and he was in the middle of his Utah hunting season. And I got a, a message like a day later, two days later, and, and he killed a really nice buck there in, in Utah. So just super psyched for him. It wasn't but a, a week later, maybe a week and a half later, his hunting partner, Matt Bateman, killed a really nice buck there in Utah, and Kip was there to help him pack it out. So just a great guy and a great hunter and tagged out on mule deer. And so uh, be exciting to see the rest of his season, how he does. Um, you can find Kip Fowler. He does have an Instagram account on there. Um, so, so make sure to check that out. Uh, he's just got some great posts, uh, both with, with, uh, support photos and harvest photos. He runs a really good account. I really enjoy following him. So make sure to check that out. Uh, the sponsor for today's show is Zamberlin Boots. Again, guys, just making a great pair of boots. I've been using them on a few hunts here and plan to use them on my next hunt. And, and uh, they just build a good lightweight waterproof set of boots. And it's got like the right stiffness for me. I, it seems like too stiff and you can get that ankle bite on steep terrain and I just like to be able to move mine and everybody has different preferences and I you know I I really think that they build them you know I know they build some stiffer mountaineering boots as well but I really like their their lighter play, uh pair that they make um they're they're called like the urines the uh what is it y e r e n s uh those are the ones that I'm running and and super psyched on those so make sure to check those out Again, I uh, saw that special on Eastman's. We're running that outdoor knife kit with a subscription. Uh, so if you're interested, make sure you check that out. And uh, 
gosh, with that, I got uh, I leave two days here for this this elk hunt I've been waiting all year for. So can't wait to go turn up some good bulls. The dates are perfect. It's like uh, September 21st today, uh, so I'll be over there. Gosh, I thought I was leaving the 22nd. Um, I got my dates wrong. Maybe it's the 23rd I'm leaving, but. Um, yeah, just can't wait. It's going to be a blast. Can't wait to get after him and, and go chase these things around. So um, I better check my calendar and check my dates and make sure I may be leaving tomorrow by the sounds of that. I swear I was leaving the 22nd. Uh, so I better get my dates right and make sure I can meet the guys in there at the right time. But uh, yeah, just super excited. It's going to be way fun. So um, yeah, going to go chase those things around, see if I can't get a good bull down. So with that, let's call it an episode. Uh, thanks as always, guys, for the support. I uh, really hope your hunting season's going well, getting the field and, and enjoying the mountains, and I and, uh, hope you got some good hunts coming up. And uh, I'll check in with you guys next week.